This is the Northwest Passage from KLCC News. I'm KLCC News Director Rachel McDonald. The podcast has been on hiatus while most of us are working from home during the coronavirus pandemic. But during this time, another big news story has become a huge focus of our reporting. That's the protests that have come in response to the killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police. Here in Eugene, the first big event was on May 29th. That Friday night, what started as a peaceful march to honor Floyd turned into a riot that included a bonfire in the middle of 7th Avenue at Washington Street and the destruction of several businesses on that corner. KLCC's Elizabeth Gabriel and Mallory Begay have been covering the daily events that have followed that night. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having us. Each of you maybe can help explain what has been happening in Eugene and Springfield over the past several weeks? Sure. So on Sunday, May 31st, we had our biggest protest in Eugene, which was held by the group that is now known as Black, the Black-led Action Coalition. And just a reminder, this was a protest for the killing of George Floyd, who was killed by a Minneapolis police officer who had his knee on George Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And in honor of that, many protesters have since come together and they have laid down in streets for eight minutes and 46 seconds. They've kneeled down in streets for eight minutes and 46 seconds just to kind of hammer in that idea that this person was unable to breathe for that amount of time. We've also seen people who have marched for hours on end. A group now known as Black Unity has marched on the I-105 freeway. We've seen them now take down statues of people who had racist ideologies. Yeah, and Elizabeth, you mentioned the statues coming down. Um, A lot of these protests have included teach-ins where people have been able to learn more about Oregon's history, uh, whether that's about the exclusionary laws or the KKK's presence in Eugene. And there's also been moments where people have been able to share their experiences um, and what it's like to be Black in Oregon or Eugene and Springfield or in Lane County. And so I think It's just been really interesting to see this many people come out and protest and advocate long after that that big May 31st event. It was a huge turnout. I think the police estimated somewhere in the range of 7,000, maybe more, who, um, you know, started at the federal building in Eugene and then marched across the Ferry Street Bridge and... um, what were some of the messages that people were chanting? What, what, what did some of the signs say? A lot of them were just Black Lives Matter, white silence is violence. Some of them have been saying ACAB, which is all cops are bastards, which has definitely been a contributing factor to the groups breaking up. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the signs are just advocating for the black people and people of color who have died at the hands of police racism um, and other acts of violence just throughout the decades, throughout the generations, um, and really calling attention to the systematic problem that's in place. 
And I think another clear message that day was the absence of the Eugene police chief, Chris Skinner. He was initially planned to speak that day, and then organizers decided to disinvite him. And so I think that's really set the tone for some of these protests, uh, because these groups and activists and protesters, they've made it very clear that they're not looking for words or speeches, they're looking for change. Moving on, I mean, we've had these events pretty much on a daily basis, and the movement has kind of fractured into several different groups. Can one of you describe what these different groups are? So there are at least four different groups that are active to varying degrees that we know of now. And so there's Black, the Black-led Action Coalition, and then there's BIPOC, the Black and Indigenous People of Color Liberation Collective, and then Black Unity and BLM Eugene. And so Black, the Black-led Action Coalition is actually led by Madeline and Spencer Smith. They're the siblings that put on the big May 31st march, and they've kind of stuck to themselves and have been pretty solid since then. And then around the same time, BLM Eugene was sort of formed around the time. It's a little bit tricky just because, you know, they wanted to keep the momentum of that really big protest. And so they were kind of committed to protesting every night, but they hadn't really developed an identity yet. And and they hadn't really figured out who they were and what they were supportive of. So you had a group of people who had different ideologies on how policing should be done. So you had one section of the group who was in support of police abolition. And when I say abolition, I mean the complete dismantling and defunding of the Eugene Police Department. And then you had the other section of the group who was more in favor of police reform. And so while they were still trying to figure themselves out, they were trying to protest together But that didn't work out, and it eventually led to a split with those in favor of police abolition leaving and forming their own group. And I don't want to say that this is when BIPOC Liberation Collective was born, because I'm not sure if they had been meeting together before. We don't really know a lot about the leadership of BIPOC right now because they're pretty anonymous. After that, BLM faced another split, but this split was more related to a difference in leadership. And so a few of the organizers of BLM decided to start their own group after some differences with Moses Jackson, who's one of the leaders of BLM Eugene. And so that group is now known as Black Unity. So the splitting of these groups is mostly due to differences in how policing should be done, if at all, and a difference in leadership. That's kind of where we're at right now. But I will say these groups have all said that they're in favor of defunding the police and also removing school resource officers from school districts. So you mentioned Moses Jackson. What are some of the other folks that you know of who are in leadership positions for these groups? So we have Moses Jackson uh, with BLM Eugene, who hasn't been as prominent lately, aside from their Juneteenth celebration. We have Black Unity, which is led by Clea Ibrahim, Mm -hmm. I believe is how you pronounce that, as well as Isaiah Wagner and others. And then we have the Black-led Action Coalition, which is led by Madeline and Spencer Smith. And then we have the BIPOC Liberation Collective, which is led by an anonymous group of people who regularly come out. It sounds like it's the same voices. However, they are 
covered head to toe in black clothing. You see them wearing sunglasses. It's very hard to identify them, but they sound like they've been led by the same group of people. And that that group, um, let's just call them BLC, uh, BIPOC Liberation Collective, they have been very um, clear that they don't want to be identified, that they sometimes they ask to, you know, not have their pictures taken or they ask not to be recorded. What do you think that's about? Whenever they are out and about uh, protesting, they have claimed that they do not want to be identified because in the past, particularly in response to the Ferguson protest, police officers have been able to arrest protesters based on the fact that they have seen them out protesting based off of pictures, videos of them doing activism-like actions. And so now protesters have said to have this fear that they don't want to be arrested years down the line in case something happens. I think it's also worth noting that there have been many incidents of violence or many incidents that have escalated during the time in which BLC is protesting. For example, BLC went outside the homes of Eugene City Council members with pots and pans so that they can bang on them and make noise and try to urge the city council members to vote in favor of their demands. Uh, Another example is the fact that they went outside the home of Mayor Lucy Venice the other night and, again, banged on pans. They set a sign on fire outside her home while she had been communicating with them and answering some of their questions. So... I think it is also safe to say that this group of protesters wants to be covered up because they are afraid of the repercussions of their actions. Mm -hmm. Have you been able to talk with them at all, like any individuals, to get their perspective on what they're doing, on sort of their overall purpose? I have reached out to one of them who, again, has remain anonymous. Mm -hmm. I have not received a reply back in terms of an interview. However, at their protests, they have mentioned they do not want to be interviewed by media. They claim they are not seeking fandom, that they are doing this for the community, and that they don't want media attention. Mm -hmm. So it has been difficult interacting with them and trying to understand what message that they're trying to convey. Because again, like they don't want pictures taken of them, they don't want videos, and they have claimed that they're not available for an interview at this time. So it's possible that things could change going forward, but at this time they've said that they don't want to speak to the media. Now Mallory, you did talk with Mayor Lucy Venice, who, as Elizabeth described, had these activists outside of her home and and they were making noise and, and, you know, kind of calling on her to explain, you know, about why the city won't just defund police. What what did she say about that experience? Just some quick background on this. Some protesters and activists have been asking Eugene city officials to defund the Eugene Police Department. And so they were specifically asking the city to, to redirect funds from EPD to other services like CAHOOTS, 
And so prior to showing up outside of the homes of officials, including Venice, they had sent hundreds of emails to city officials. They had um, regularly spoken up during public comment periods and public hearings um, at meetings, which of course are virtual now. And so I think this was really a boiling point for protesters and activists. And so they arrived outside of Venice's house and Venice told me she knew that BLC was going to arrive at her house uh, two hours before they actually showed up. And so she had decided that this would be an opportunity to show that she is listening to their demands. She said that she understood there was a lot of anger and frustration. And she also noted that they had, you know, assumed that she was racist, which she really took issue with because I don't think anyone wants to be called a racist. And she said that they wanted her to make a commitment to defunding the Eugene Police Department. But of course, right now, that's not really an option uh, since they already passed the budget and they've cited legal reasons for doing that. But they are exploring other options that may provide more funding to other services like CAHOOTS in July. And this is just one of the few demands that these protesters had been advocating for. And this also includes the removal of school resource officers from the 4J school district. Elizabeth, you covered that 4J budget meeting where they decided that they will phase out school resource officers. Yes. So one of the school board members, Martina Shabram, has actually been or was actually attending some of the protest and advocating on a personal non-school board member manner about what she believes should happen. And she was essentially advocating for the school to get rid of school resource officers. Come the vote, BIPOC Liberation Collective had claimed that three of the school board members, Martina Shabram, Gordon Lafer, and Alicia Hayes, were going to vote no to having school resource officers. And so that would mean that they only needed one more school board member to vote no so that they could remove them completely and not renew their contract. However, that is not what happened. In the end, they decided to renew the contract with EPD. And during this time, they will now work with community members, students, parents, people of color to figure out how to modify the duties of an SRO and to essentially get rid of law enforcement agents in general, which is extremely interesting because initially before these protests started, that was not going to happen at all. This contract was going to be renewed for another five years. Hmm. And it is very impressive that this contract went from being renewed for five years to having the final decision of it only being renewed for another six months. Yeah. So this has been a lot of a lot to cover, a lot of news on almost a daily basis. We've been experiencing some sort of protest or event. What are some of the challenges that that you're facing as reporters in covering what's happening out there? As a reporter, I mean, as we just mentioned earlier, it has been difficult covering these protests when people prefer to remain anonymous. It has been difficult whenever they're not willing to to let us essentially do our jobs. It's difficult covering them. I mean, on a personal matter, as a reporter, but also a Black female, it's difficult covering these protests and knowing, as you mentioned, Mallory, that the city has not really taken any steps to 
do something. They have made this statement. They have said that they are in support of Black Lives Matter. But however, they have not, you know, tried to hire more black or people of color community members. They have not tried to state how many black or people of color community members work for the city. They have not actively they have not actively addressed the concerns of protesters, which is defunding the police. So it is difficult to cover these protests and not really see the city address these concerns more frequently. Hmm. Should I add on to that or should I Please talk do. about my ch- Okay. So in terms of, of challenges, yeah. I will say that language is also something that, because I think journalism itself nationally is having to grapple with some of those issues as well. Um, and this is just a small example, but it hasn't been a widespread practice to capitalize black in, in news articles or to capitalize the word indigenous. You know, it's not just a local problem. It's a national problem that I feel like a lot of institutions have been dragging their heels on. And so now that there's all this support and and outcry, you know, you have NASCAR making changes, you have public and private businesses making changes. And it's, you know, it's interesting to see it all happen at once. It's exciting to see that. But at the same time, it's also, you know, why did they take so long? Why is it taking so long to do something that seems completely logical? And meanwhile, I mean, there's still the coronavirus, there's still, um, you know, a, a pandemic that, we're all trying to, um, you know, keep ourselves safe from. So um, how do you feel about that when you're out in the field? I mean, it's scary. It's scary accidentally touching people, um, even if it's just their elbow, just coming in contact with people in general now because we've been socially distancing for so long. And so it is concerning when we're in such coarse quotas for such a long time, people are chanting, people are sweating, people are, you know. So this is a concern as to whether or not there will be more positive cases of COVID-19 because of the protest. At the same time, though, I mean, it seems like the protesters are probably more compliant, at least with mask wearing, than in many other public spaces. They have been for the most part. Um mm-hmm. I've seen a lot of people wear masks. However, I did attend the Juneteenth celebration at uh, towards the end of it on Friday, mm-hmm. and which was held by Black Unity. And I went out there and was extremely surprised by the amount of people not wearing masks. They also had a slip and slide for kids, which seems like <laughs> germ central. Uh, so... It is concerning because I realized that was, you know, a more fun event. But I think it's also worth noting that we should still be following pandemic COVID-19 protocols, even while protesting or having celebrations in honor of Black people. Hmm. Well, I think we should probably wrap this up just because of time. I know there are a few things we didn't get to. Is there anything else either of you would like to add just about what this has been like or, or your observations or thoughts? Well, it is interesting covering these Black Lives Matter protests and not seeing a lot of Black people. The protests, it doesn't even matter which group you're going to, largely these protests have been very white. 
And I think this is definitely the beginning of a larger conversation of where are the black people in Eugene and Springfield? Why do they not feel comfortable coming out and advocating for themselves? And I think it's largely been the fact that they are scared of the repercussions. I remember even on the first large protest, which was on Sunday, May 31st, which had 7,000 people, there were many black people that I approached for an interview and they declined because they did not want to face the repercussions of experiencing racism from other coworkers from being discriminated against. So I think that's a huge problem that we're facing. And there was a protest that was smaller later on, maybe about a week after that, and that had more black people. However, that led to a very heated discussion about what they're chanting and about whether or not people are just fully understanding the struggle of a black person and what it means to chant, I can't breathe, because that's someone's last words. Mm -hmm. That's the last thing that they said before they died. And people, you know, locally as well as nationally have been questioning, like, is that an okay quote to say? Like, is that something that people should be chanting? So I think there's a lot more to discuss moving forward with these protests. Mallory? Wow. <laughs> Sorry. I should have went first. Uh, <laughs> just switch it around. Just switch it around. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it, it's interesting uh, because I think it, these protests have revealed a lot of institutions dragging their heels. Immediately, I'm, I'm thinking about the uh, the statues that, you know, you, Rachel, you covered mm-hmm. when they came down. I know she'll before that, he came out with a statement that, yeah, we're going to talk about this and we're going to, you know, talk with our committee about steps moving forward. But that conversation has been going on for a while because I remember covering a protest a year ago where indigenous students were protesting that very statue. And at the time, he also released that statement, which was saying that they were going to consider it. So, you know, his considerations, his university's considerations of these statues is something that they've been talking about for years, something that students have been protesting for years. It was part of the the Black Student Union. It was part of their demands mm-hmm. years ago. And so I think for the president to sort of come out and say, we're going to continue to have this conversation and then after the fact that these statues were taken down to also come out with a statement like we needed to have a conversation about <laughs> this before they were removed is kind of you know interesting and i think that's really telling to a lot of students and to a lot of you know the community members who were protesting this for years and who had been waiting for that conversation to happen and, you know, Dee Dee Hall recently got the, the name change as well. But that was another thing that they seem to be dragging their feet on. So it's interesting to see how the city is reacting, how the colleges are reacting and how the school district is reacting. Well, I agree that I don't think Dee Dee Hall would have been renamed if it weren't for what's happening right now. I mean, it was clearly on the back burner for University of Oregon leadership. The fact that they got pushed to deal with the pioneer statues, I mean, they basically had no choice. Thank you so much, Elizabeth Gabriel and Mallory Begay, our KLCC reporters who've been covering much of the protests and events that have been happening around Black Lives Matter here in Eugene. And we will be continuing to follow this story. And it's great to have a little bit of time to look a little deeper at this topic. So thanks so much, both of you. Thank you.